0: Good morning to everyone and it's good to see so many of the Lord's people gathered already uh, for the conference today. I want to thank the assembly here for your invitation and for your welcome. It is a real privilege to be here and I certainly bring greetings from any of the believers that uh, you would know over uh, on the other side of the Atlantic. It's a privilege to share with her, brother Higgins already today and her other uh, two brethren later on in the well Of the Lord, and I feel very humbled indeed. Our brother at the start said that he wouldn't take any of my time. Not only has he not done that, but he's actually given me uh, quite a big section of his, which is uh, more than kind and generous of him. We thank the Lord for his word that we've already heard, and we pray that we will hear uh, his voice throughout the time together and know his blessing uh, throughout the conference. Now, I'd like to read, please, in the epistle. To the Hebrews and chapter 1. Hebrews and chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the Majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee, and again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels he saith, Who maketh his angels spirits, and his ministers a flame of fire. But unto the son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is for ever and ever, a sceptre of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest. And they all shall wax old as doth a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them, who shall be heirs of salvation. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and confirmed unto us by them that heard him, God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and with divers miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. Now that's a reading and we thank the Lord for his precious, lovely word and pray for his blessing. Just a very simple title on what I want to speak to uh, you on this morning. Uh, can be found in verse 4, better than the angels. Better than the angels. The word better is of course a key word in the epistle to the Hebrews and this is the first occurrence as we have it here. We were hearing from our dear brother about uh, some really eminent prophets, David uh, and Moses and Elijah. And they're spoken of, ones like them in chapter 1. God who spoke in times past and in divers ways he spoke through the prophets. Great men like this. It was not sporadic. It was not random. But now in these last days He says he has spoken to us in son, in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So implied right at the very beginning, we see that the Lord Jesus, he is better than the prophets. But now explicitly, the writer states that he is better than the angels. Very simply, I want us to think of three ways or three things that he does here to really show us that the Lord Jesus is better than than the angels. We'll look first of all at verses 1 to 4 where it's asserted, the assertion is made that he is better than the angels. Then the Bible is a wonderful book, a very logical book. He doesn't just state that the Lord Jesus is better than the angels, but he goes on to prove it. And so not only is it asserted in verses 1 to 4, but it is very clearly argued in the remainder of chapter 1, verses 5 to 14. And then the Bible is also very wonderful, Because not only does it not just make statements, but proves them and shows the reality of them, it applies them to the readers. And that's what we get in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. The fact that the Lord Jesus is better than the angels is applied to the readers, and we trust be applied to us today. You see, you can say, well, sure, what you've read there, it's all very uh, theological and all very doctrinal. What difference does it make to me? Well, the writer brings before us the difference that it ought to make to every one of us the fact that the Lord Jesus is better than the angels. All right then, verses 1 to 4, it is asserted that he is... Better than the angels. I'm not going to take time to try to uh, su- suggest who the writer of this book is. Obviously, he doesn't want us to know who he is. God doesn't want us to. And the first word in the book is the all important thing it's God. It is God who is the subject of this book. And the great message in the Lord Jesus is that God. Has spoken. He spoke in times past. Now he has spoken in these last days. He spoke at different times. He spoke in different ways. Now he has spoken once for all. He spoke in the prophets and now he is speaking. He has spoken in his son. Who is this one? Oh, what wonderful statements are made concerning the Lord Jesus Christ in verses two to four. Any one of them could take a whole meeting and far longer in itself. But very briefly, we're just going to look at this vast span of what is said concerning him, his son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things. Sonship necessarily implies heirship. And the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is the son, he is heir of all. That's something that will be developed very much through the Hebrews as well. By whom also he made the worlds. He is the one through whom the worlds were made. Now what does that mean? It's not just the physical worlds, although that is included in it, but the word is really there. The ages. In other words, our brother was thinking about this, about the, the sovereignty of God. It's not just the physical things were made, but the whole course of history as it were. God's whole plan and purpose for the Universe, it was through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that these were made. Now, three lovely, ongoing, continuous things of him being the brightness of glory, verse 3. That inherent shining out of glory that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, the express image of his person, the one who faithfully represents who God is. And another ongoing thing, upholding all things by the word of his power. Not only is the Lord Jesus Christ the agent in the creation, but he is the one who upholds everything that has been made. That is very important. Because there are some, some who will try to tell us that, well, yes, they, they do sort of believe that, that God made the world. But it's like he just like wound up a clock and then just left it to gradually take down. That God is not active in what he has made today. That is altogether wrong. Not only did God make everything, but God upholds everything. And it is through our blessed Lord Jesus Christ. So three ongoing things. Being. One. The brightness of his glory. Two, the express image of his person. Three, upholding all things by the word of his power. Now we have three great events that are brought before us. Historic events. When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels. Oh, this is Calvary that's brought before us. That once for all great event in the history of his, the world. The Lord Jesus, He made purification for sin. What He did there upon the cross was not only. To provide the basis that our individual sins might be forgiven. But that God's whole program for the universe could be carried out. That the whole creation as we read in Romans chapter 8. To be redeemed from the bondage of corruption. How broad, how great was the work that the Lord Jesus Christ did upon the cross. His death. He made purification for sins. And then what did he do? He sat down on the right hand. Of the majesty on high. Oh how wonderful these things are. The whole uh, scope of eternity. And human history is there. Being the brightness of his glory. And the express image of his person. I take that to be eternally true. Upholding all things by the word of his power. True right from the moment of creation. And then great historic events. Before that he created all things. Then he by himself purged our sins and then he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Is it any wonder the writer says in verse 4 being made so much better than the angels. the, The comparison that he makes here. Being so much better than the angels as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. In other words, the degree to which he is better than the angels is measured by the degree to which he has a greater name, a greater reputation, a greater honor than they. Now the question might be asked, is that not a rather strange statement for the writer to make here? How could it say that the Lord Jesus is made better than the angels? Sure, was he not always better than the angels? And of course that is true. And that's what he'll go on to prove. His deity, he has always been better than the angels. And yet, in another sense, the fact that he has come into this world, the fact that he has done the work to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, the fact that he has been exalted to the right hand of God is evidence, proof that can be clearly seen in a way that it has never been demonstrated before that he is better than the angels. His exaltation as a result of the work that he has done in Calvary has shown that his reputation is high. And higher in that sense than it has ever been. I take it that we're really looking at very similar to what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. Of course he was always exalted. He was always a great, he's great. Eternally so. And yet as a result of what he did in becoming obedient right to the point of death. Even the death of the cross. God has ensured his exaltation high above All better than the angels asserted in verses 1 to 4. Right, argued in verses 5 to 14. Argued on the basis of what? Argued on the basis of quotation from the Old Testament Scriptures as we now know them. Seven great quotations from the Old Testament in the remainder of chapter 1. I'm not reading from a Newbury Bible today, but I did look up my Newbury Bible a few days ago. And one of the very nice things about the Newbury Bible is that the Old Testament, when it's quoted in the New, it's in block capitals. And it's absolutely striking, of course, as you look at this latter part of chapter 1, just how much of it is in block capitals. That just emphasizes for us how much there's quotation from the Old Testament here in this latter part of Hebrews and chapter 1. And I love the fact that the writer here, he's using Scripture, Scripture that would have been familiar to these Hebrew readers to prove the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ to the angels. That's a good thing, by the way. If you're asked to prove something, if you're asked to show that something is true, what do you do it from? You do it from the Scriptures. That's the Word of God. That's what we can depend upon. That's what we can rely upon as true. And that is what we use in everything that we seek uh, to show. Now, I was also glad that our dear brother Gene Higgins uh, spoke about David quite a bit uh, this morning because really David features very prominently uh, in this first chapter and also in chapter 2 as well. Out of the seven quotations, six of them are from the book of Psalms. And what about the one that's not from the book of Psalms? Well, it's from Second Samuel and it's actually Nathan the prophet. One of the prophets through whom God spoke, as we read in chapter 1. Nathan the prophet telling David he would have a son. uh, His son Solomon, whom our brother also mentioned. And so David and the Psalms, it's really very prominent in these seven uh, quotations. You can see there's a pattern as well. What's the first quotation there in verse 5 introduced by? Unto which of the angels said he at any time? And what's the last quotation, verse 13? To which of the angels said he at any time? So there's a question, a similar question at the beginning and at the end. And of course the answer in each case is he didn't say it to any of the angels. There was no angel to which he said any of these things. Not only so, but these two questions at the beginning and at the end of his quotations, they really answer to what he has already done in, in his assertion at the beginning. You'll notice that the first uh, description of the Lord Jesus in verse 2, spoken unto us in Son. So he is the Son, verse 2. And what is the first quotation in verse 5? Thou art my Son. What's the last thing that's said about the Lord Jesus as far as historical events are concerned? In verse 3, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. And that's what we have in verse 13. In the last quotation there, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Now I'm not going to take a long time with each of the individual quotations but it's masterly the way the writer he brings to us through them the superiority of the Lord Jesus to the angels. He is better than the angels. What's the first one there? Verse 5 For unto which of the angels said he at any time thou art my son this day have I begotten thee. Now in the scriptures angels are referred to collectively as sons of God. We, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ today, we are also collectively referred to as sons of God. But there was no angel to whom God ever said individually at any time, thou art my son. That's the point that the writer uh, is making very clearly here. But he did say to his son, Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. Quoted in the second Psalm. Psalm 2. Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. Now the question will arise, of course, well, what day is he talking about? Well, I take it that the, the statement, thou art my son, is eternally true. But this day have I begotten thee refers to A particular day in history. Now, what day in history is that? Well, really there are two different views on that. Some would say that it's the day of his incarnation. The day that he was begotten of the Holy Ghost. Others would say it's the day of his resurrection. What view do I take? Well, I'll tell you. If you ask me at the interval. But I'm not going to say now. For the very simple reason. That if I was to start saying which view I took. It would distract us from the main point. That is being made here. The point is not so much. When did God say it to his son. As that he did say it to his son. And he didn't say it to any of the angels. He said to the son. I will tell the, declare the decree. Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. He never said that to any of the angels. That is the point. We could have a Bible reading and discuss which is it. And it would be very interesting. At least I would find it very interesting. And I know that many others would here too. But you see, we could lose the main point. Which is that he did say it to his son. And he didn't say it to any of the angels. That's the first one in verse 5. What about the second quote there in the second part of verse 5? And again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. But this is the one that's not from the Psalms. This is the one from Second Samuel in chapter 7 where Nathan is speaking regarding Solomon. Now, this is a, there's a, an interesting lesson for us to get uh, from this here when we study the Scriptures, and it's simply this, that it's quite clear if you read it in the context that that Scripture is not talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's very clear that Nathan is telling David that he will have a son, and there's no doubt that that son is Solomon, the one we've been hearing about already. Even the next part of the verse speaks about what would happen if he did iniquity. And of course there was no possibility of the Lord Jesus Christ ever doing that. So what the Holy Spirit through the writer is doing here is taking a verse out of its primary context and applying it to the Lord Jesus Christ. And quite often in quoting the Old Testament the Holy Spirit does that in the New Testament. Takes a verse out of its original context And applies it to a different situation. And when the Holy Spirit does that. That means that it is inspired. In that new context. As well as in the old. But please, let's remember that does not give us the right to take a verse out of its context and to say that it means something that wasn't there in the original context. The Holy Spirit has the right to do that, and he does do it in his word. But for us, we must always interpret scripture according to the context in which it is written. Well, did God ever have to say to his son, Or concerning his son, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Well, no, he didn't, because the Lord Jesus Christ is eternally the Son of God. So why then is the writer saying here that uh, he, he he never said, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son? The point is simply this. Not so much that God did say it to his son, but that he didn't ever say it to any angel. You see, angels are created beings. But the Lord Jesus Christ is uncreated. He is the creator. And so, angels, there was a point in time when they did come into being. And none of them had ever, at any time, had God said of them, I shall be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. You see, the writer is building up the fact That the Lord Jesus is better than angels. God said to him positively, Thou art my son. He never said that to an angel. He never said concerning an angel, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. What about the third quotation? It's there in verse 6. And again when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world he saith. Now what's the difference between the first begotten, verse 6, and begotten in verse 5? Well, when the term first begotten is used, it always implies that that one who is thus described is the first of others to follow. And that's why the Lord Jesus is described as the first begotten of the dead, the firstborn from among the dead. Because his resurrection, never to die again, is the beginning of an abundant harvest that will include you, And me, if we die, we will be raised never to die again. He is the one who has is the first to rise. It's first Corinthians chapter fifteen. The order and resurrection. Christ the first fruits, afterwards they that are Christ at his coming, and then cometh. The end. what a glorious truth he is the first begotten from among the dead, and God will be bringing him back into this world again. Now I know that free us again there in verse six could be seen in a couple of different ways. It could be and again as and i 'm giving you another quote, and that 's certainly possible and quite all right if that 's how we look at it. The other way to look at it is that the again doesn't mean he's giving another quote, although that's true, but that he's talking about when the Lord Jesus comes back again into the world. The Lord Jesus has been here. He has come. He's put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He's made purification for sins. He's sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He's coming back to the air to take us to be with himself, although that is not here in this passage, and he's coming back again into the world God is going to bring him back into this world that's a wonderful thing the world that now rejects him the lord jesus is coming back and he's going to reign forever and he will receive worship the worship of angels in the scriptures we see quite clearly that angels are not to be worshiped right to the very last chapter of the bible we see that that worship is not to be given to angels But worship is to be given to the Son and the angels of God, they will worship him. Now again, since the angels of God worship the Lord Jesus, it's very clear that the Lord Jesus is greater than they are. He is better than the angels. What's the fourth quote? Well, you know, I'm going to take the fourth and the fifth together because they really stand in, in a lovely contrast uh, to one uh, another. Verse 7, the first quote from Psalm 104. Verses 8 and 9, the next one from Psalm 45. Verse 7 is speaking of the angels. Verse 8 is speaking of the sun. What does it say of the angels? It says that they are spirits. In verse 7, what does it say of the Son? In verse 8, it says that He is God. What are His ministers, His servants there in verse 7? It says that they are spirits. They are a flame of fire. That's a very graphic sort of a phrase. And we, we know what a flame of fire is like. It's something that uh, is never really constant. It's not there uh, all the time in exactly the same way. You take a photo of a flame and you take another photo a fraction of a second later and it will be different. The color mix will be different. The position of the different parts. You'll never get exactly two photos the same, even of the flame from the same fire. There's that idea of transience. There's that idea of mutability as far as the angels are concerned. But what about the sun? Well, there's no mutability. There's no transience. He says, Unto the sun he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever." and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Oh, yes, the angels are great. They're abundant in power. God has given them the great privilege of being his ministers, his servants, but he makes them servants. He makes them their spirits. They're a flame of fire, but he turns to the sun and he says, thy throne, O God, is forever." And ever all oh, the glory of the eternity of the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ he shall reign over this earth in a day to come. he shall reign forever and ever. Now that quote from psalm forty five is an extended quote and he extends it here quotes the next bit in verse nine and that is uh, very interesting because it's really speaking i think about the Lord Jesus righteous life here on earth. God has always loved righteousness and hated iniquity. But very particularly, we can see it in the Lord Jesus Christ when he was here in this world. He demonstrated love and hatred. This world today is very unbalanced. It thinks that there should only be love. And love is fine and love is good and love is wonderful. Well, so it is in the right place and in the right way and for the right things. But there should be hatred as well. And we should not just be people who love but we should be people who hate. Not who hate people. No, not at all. But things that we hate. Iniquity, sin, transgression. That is wickedness against God. And we should hate it. Let us love the right things like the Lord Jesus did and hate the things that we are to hate, the things that are to be repudiated, the things that are contrary to God, contrary to his word, and contrary to our spiritual blessing. What is the consequence of the Lord Jesus' loving righteousness and hating iniquity? He says, therefore, God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Another question. Who are these fellows? It's really the word that could be translated partakers. It's translated that way. Sometimes it's translated or meaning companions. Sometimes who is being spoken of here? Is it other rulers? The context in Psalm 45 might Lend support to that view. It's the king there in all his beauty and all his glory. So maybe in the context of Psalm forty five you could take it that it's other rulers that he's anointed with the oil of gladness above. There are other rulers in this world, but none like him. Or could it be the angels that are being spoken of here? Perhaps in, in the context of, of chapter one here, you could you could be tended to go for that view. He, he's comparing, he's contrasting the Lord Jesus Christ with angels. And he says, well, God has anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Or could it be you? Could it be me? Perhaps. Because as we read on in the book of Hebrews, we, we, we see, for example, in chapter 2 about uh, people who are to be called his Brethren, he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Chapter 3, we read the same word in verse 1. Partakers of the heavenly calling. Verse 14, partakers of Christ. Who are these companions? Who are these fellows? Is it kings? Is it angels? Is it believers in the Lord Jesus Christ? I don't know. And I don't mind. Because the fact of it is, whoever it is. That the Lord Jesus is anointed with the oil of gladness above them. If we compare him with kings, what a contrast. If we compare him with angels, what a contrast. If we compare him with you and with me, what a contrast. He is above all. He is gloriously above all. Praise be to the name of God. What about the sixth quotation? Another quite long one in verses 10 to 12 psalm 102 and a few of the verses there what lovely verses these are and thy lord in the beginning has led the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the works of thy hands what does that tell us it tells us once again that creation is a work of god it's god in the beginning has led the foundation of the earth what we see down here is the work of god what we see up in the heavens it's the work of his hands as well. I was just looking at something in the, uh, the news yesterday and a, a headline caught, caught my eye that there's going to be an eclipse of, the, of a super moon tomorrow evening. Probably just uh, about 8 o'clock or 10 o'clock or something like that. And maybe if I remember, depending on what I'm doing, I'll maybe go outside and see if I can see it. A super moon. What does that mean? Well, it means that the world, the moon, will be a lot closer to the Earth tomorrow night than than it, than it usually is, and so it will be bigger in the sky. And then there will be an eclipse of that. Just it's wonderful to think how that men can predict exactly when that's going to happen. Why? Because of the order in creation and I will look at it if I remember tomorrow and I want to look at it mainly not just because it's a rare event but just to marvel at the creation of God. Oh this isn't an accident. This isn't something that's come about just by some uh, process some random thing and all that. No, it's all been made by God. That's the point he's already made of course at the beginning that he uh, made the worlds, he made the ages but now he's saying it's not just the past not just the past not just the creation when it came into being but he's looking now at the other end what will happen when the creation will be folded up? Well that's what he has in verse 11. They shall perish but thou remainest and they all shall wax old as doth a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. This universe is not going to last forever. No. It will fulfill its function. bit like in parallel to what our dear brother was bringing before us of how David He served his generation by the will of God. This present order of the heavens and the earth, they will fulfill their purpose in the great plan of God as well. And the day will come when just as we take a garment that we have no further use for and we fold it up, the Lord will do that himself with this creation. That is very sobering. What we see, what is all around us, the things of this world, they had a beginning. And they will have an end. They will not last. As we have been so helpfully hearing already from our brother this morning. The important thing in our life is to know the will of God. And to do the will of God. And to seek the things that are of God. Not the things of this transient world that will pass away. They shall perish. But thy remainest. They shall all wax old as doth a garment and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up and they shall be changed. But thy are the same. O oh, our blessed Lord Jesus Christ. Immutable. Unchangeable. The one who was there before the worlds were brought into being. And he is the one who brought them into being. The one who will be there After they cease to exist, he will be the very one who will bring them to their conclusion. He says, thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. Final quotation. Verse 13. But to which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool"? Where is the Lord Jesus Christ now? He's at the right hand of God. What is he waiting for? He's waiting until his enemies be made his footstool. He's waiting until he takes his throne. In the meantime, he's at the right hand of God. He has sat down at the right hand of the majesty and high. The place of prestige and of power and of authority. That place of privilege at the right hand of God. That is where he is. A lovely hymn in the Believer's Hymn Book. It's one of the hymns that I'm sorry they didn't put into the new gospel hymn book that we have over on the other side of the Atlantic. And there's words like this in it. Jesus the Savior reigns. The God of truth and love. When he had purged our stains. He took his seat above. Lift up your heart lift up your voice, rejoice again, I say rejoice. He sits at God's right hand till all his foes submit or by at his command or fall beneath his feet. Lift up your heart, lift up your voice, rejoice again, I say rejoice. Oh, he is at the right hand of God. To which of the angels Did God say that? Well, of course, he didn't say it to any, but he said it to his blessed son. Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Psalm 110, verse 1. In fact, this Psalm 110 is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. And this is one of the great quotations from that. Oh, yes, it's it's just, again, the, the contrast with the angels are brought out. Verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? He is sitting, not the angels. They are sent Fourth, There's constant movement as far as they're concerned. Their work is ongoing. It's not finished. Well, as far as the work of putting away sin is concerned, that work is finished, and the Lord Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God. It is a finished work. His work is done in that sense, although there's other work that he is still doing and will do. Of course, they're still ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be Heirs of salvation, those who are about to inherit salvation. They are servants. He is the Son. The writer, reader, writer is bringing that very clearly before us. So, proven beyond all doubt that the Lord Jesus is better than the angels. Quite a bit of other things proven on the way along, as well as, of course, because not only. Have we seen that his relationship to the angels has been dealt with? But his relationship to God has been dealt with. That he is the son of God. He is co-equal with the eternal God. His relation to his companions, whoever they are, is brought forth that he is greater than them. His relation to the universe has been brought forth to us as well. That he made it and he is the one who will uh, dissolve it. And his relationship to his enemies is brought before us as well, his foes will be made the footstool of his feet. Now, ten minutes left. Better than the angels, asserted in verses 1 to 4, argued very clearly by the writer in verses 5 to 14, applied in chapter 2 and verses one to four. You see the word therefore there at the very beginning of chapter 2. In other words, there are consequences. This isn't just abstract theology. This has relevance to the readers. It is relevance to you and to me today. Now, as I said earlier, we have to look at every scripture in its context. And the context, as the name of the epistle indicates to us, is that it was written to professing Hebrew believers who had heard the message of the gospel, had turned away from the temple ritual, turned away from Judaism with its sacrifices and all that, had professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and there was the danger of some of them, anyhow, apostatizing, turning back to Judaism. And that is the great danger that the writer here is bringing before them and he's pointing out that you must not do that. You mustn't turn back. And really the whole book takes us through tremendous arguments on that. But the point here particularly in view of the fact that the Lord Jesus is better than angels is indicating the fact that angels who had a very special place in Judaistic thought, angels had a very high position of honor, The Lord, Lord, he is pointing out, is better than the angels. So don't go back to that system. Because the one that you have come to trust, the one whom you have professed faith in, is better than the angels. So there is the context in which this is given. But there are lessons for us today. What does he say? He calls it here, verse 3, so Great salvation. What salvation? Well, I take it the same salvation he's spoken of at the end of chapter 1 and verse 14. Salvation in all its fullness. Initial salvation, ongoing preservation, and ultimately the salvation that we will inherit when the Lord Jesus comes back again. When it is brought to its completion. When body, soul, and spirit are together uh, glorified together with himself. It is so great salvation. That word so great, two words in English, is only one word in the original. And it only occurs three other times in the whole of the New Testament. And they they do give us an insight into just what the, the thought of it is. Paul writing to the Corinthians speaks of so great a death a, an experience that he had where, where it was looking like he was going to die in a terrible way, he calls that so great a death. And then there's, a, there's an earthquake uh, in the book of Revelation and the same word is used there of the, the really uh, mighty uh, earthquake that was taking place there. And the other occurrence is James, where he speaks about the the great ships. It's the same word that's used there again, the huge ships that are turned with a very small rudder. Now here, the same term used to describe salvation, so great salvation. Why does he call it so great salvation? Well, I've preached the gospel on this and I'm sure many of you have too about maybe five or six reasons why it's so great salvation but in the, the context here I think it's very clear that he's speaking particularly in view of its contrast with the old covenant that these people were brought on, up under and that they were used to the thought of speaking is still very much there see back remember in chapter 1 and verse 1 that's speaking in chapter 1 verse 2 it's speaking and now here in chapter 2 verse 2 he says about the word spoken spoken by angels but then there's a different one who is spoken in verse 3 words spoken by the Lord so two different words the bringing in of the old covenant and the bringing in of the new covenant. In each word to case there were words spoken, spoken from God. Who was the agent that was used to speak those words? In the old covenant it was angels. In the new covenant it is the Lord Jesus Christ who is greater than the angels. It was servants who spoke under the giving of the law It is the Son, he says, who has spoken with what we have come into with this great salvation. Now what about this message that was brought by angels at the bringing in of the law? Did people have to give heed to that? Yes, they certainly did. They had to pay very close attention to it. Why? He explains why. He says it was steadfast, verse 2. It was unchangeable. And what happened if you transgressed, if you were disobedient, if you did what you were supposed not to do, and if you failed to do what you were supposed to do, there was a righteous recompense for it. You got what you deserved. In other words, it was a serious thing to reject and neglect and refuse the word that was spoken by angels. You had to give heed to it. Now he says, verse 1, we ought to give heed the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard. If the word spoken through angels was so serious a matter and there was such a serious consequence, a serious penalty, if you didn't give heed, he says, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard. He doesn't refer here to the signs that accompanied the giving of the law. He will do that later in the book. But he does give uh, reference to the signs that came with the words spoken by the Lord. And this is very important for us today in these days when there's so much of uh, so-called Pentecostal teaching and all that sort of thing that says that these sign gifts are for us today and we should be going in for these. Please, young people in particular, please don't be swayed by that sort of thing. This passage, among many others, shows that that is not so. The writer here, you notice what he says in verse 3? So great salvation, which at first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. So the writer here is not even claiming to be one of the people who actually heard the Lord himself. He says, the Lord came, the Lord Jesus, he came with this message. There were those who heard him, the apostles, and they confirmed to us the word that he spoke and what did God give them? To verify the reality of the word. That's what we have in verse 4. God also bearing witness. God gave testimony to the reality of the word that they received from the Lord himself with signs, wonders, miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit. That's really all talking about the miraculous sign gifts, as we call them, that accompanied the apostolic preaching. Again, the emphasis is different, and uh, if he refers to them as signs, that's really indicating that they pointed to something, just like a sign today does that. It pointed to a, a truth. The miracles weren't just given as a random thing. They pointed the people to the reality of the message that was given. Wonders, that would really speak of the response that it ought to have produced. In the people. Miracles would speak of the power that was associated with them, and gifts would speak of the source of it, that it came from God Himself. It came from the Holy Spirit. So, very clearly, He's not even claiming that at this same time when He's writing that these things were going on. It was something that He looks back to the past that God gave as a testimony to the reality of the message of salvation brought by the Lord Jesus Christ. Himself. Oh, but what a difference to the signs that accompanied the giving of the law. They were signs of judgment. Later in the book, chapter 12, he'll bring that side. But here were signs of blessing. And the blessing that accompanied this so great salvation. That typifies, of course, what the two covenants bring in for those who are under it the law was a a message of, of judgment the law could never justify could never save anybody it condemned every single person but the word spoken by the lord is the word of so great salvation that brings great eternal blessing to you and to me another thing you get those who deny the doctrine of the trinity They say the word Trinity is never mentioned in the Bible, that's true, but it's certainly there on the pages of Scripture very clearly, time and time again, and we get it here, for example, in the work that was going on. There's the Lord, the Lord Jesus, clearly being referred to in verse 3. There's God in verse 4, and the Holy Spirit in verse 4, all unitedly working together and bringing this great testimony to mankind. So he says, don't let slip. He says, in view of what we've heard, don't let slip. He says, we need to give earnest heed. As I said, primarily to those who were in danger of apostatizing in a a day that's long past. But then, to ourselves today, is there anybody here in the gathering who's not yet saved? Salvation has been brought by the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation is available to you today. Will you escape from the wrath and the judgment of God if you neglect this great salvation? You will not. Here's another question with no answer. We had them in chapter 1. To which of the angels? To which of the angels? None. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, how will you escape if you neglect this salvation? The answer is there's no way. There's no escape. This great message of the Lord Jesus and the work that he did to put away sin there upon the cross, it would be a wonderful day for you at this conference today if you trusted the Lord Jesus as Savior and received this great salvation. But what about for what I am sure is the great majority of the people here today, those who are saved, those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. If truly saved, no possibility of ever being lost. But it would be possible, sadly possible, that you and I could not give these great matters the serious consideration and the serious action that they should. We've been hearing already about what the will of God is for us and knowing the will of God and doing the will of God. If we consider the greatness of this person, the Lord Jesus Christ greater than the prophets, greater than the angels, greater uh, than all this universe and everything in it and think of how he is the one who is the eternal son of the eternal God. He is the one who made this creation and the one who will fold it up. He He is the one that loved us so much that he came to the cross to deal with that issue of sin. He is the one who has done the work perfectly and is exalted to the right hand of God. He is coming back into this world and the angels and all will worship him, bow before him and crown him Lord of all. Wouldn't it be a sad thing for you and for me if we were not to treat this great one, our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, with the seriousness that he deserves. He is the one who deserves all our love, the one who deserves all our devotion, the one who deserves all our service. And let us not Please, the writer is saying, don't let these things slip away. Don't drift away from the things of God. It's possible that you and I could be even coming to the meetings and cold in heart. It's possible for us to be at a conference this year and a way out in the world next year If the Lord hasn't come, let it not be so. Let us be attentive to reading the word of God. Let us be active in prayer. Let us be faithful in our attendance with the people of God. And let us be ever devoted to our Lord Jesus Christ. Where the whole realm of nature mine, Isaac Watts wrote that, Where an offering far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my heart, my life. My all. May the Lord bless his precious word.